Hello, and thank you for joining us. This week, we continue the study of the very detailed instructions that God entrusts to Moses while up on the mountain, and then the execution of those plans. We have seen the structure and furniture that are to be built so that God himself might dwell with his people. But this is no simplistic deity who needs a shelter and demands food offerings like the gods of the peoples. In order for Yahweh to dwell with his people, the people themselves must be prepared. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are worthy. You are worthy of our worship. And yet we cannot draw near to you on our own. Thank you for making a way. Thank you for doing all that needed to be done to prepare your people to come into your presence. Would you come now, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, and would you let us see you in your glory and in your greatness? Would you be honored? In Jesus' name, amen. This week, we examined several aspects of how God covers consecrates and commissions his people. I have grouped these into four areas. You can find more detailed scripture references in your notes. But as we survey this substantial body of scripture, I will introduce each section with just a very brief excerpt from the biblical text. Here are the four areas we'll consider. One, the priest's garments, special covering, to come before a holy God. Two, the priest's consecration, setting sinners apart for God's service. Three, atonement money and extravagant supply. Each one shall give. Four, workers and rest, spirit-enabled labor and covenant-keeping rest. As we review these aspects, let's trace the themes through scripture, like the precious threads of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet woven through the priest's holy garments. We'll consider the purpose for the people of Israel, pointers toward Christ, what is present for us now, and finally, promise for future fulfillment. Let's begin. Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. Exodus 28, 1 and 2. The priest's garments, special covering to come before a holy God. What was the purpose of these instructions for the people of Israel? Think back for a moment to the origin of clothing. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve disbelieved and disobeyed God, they were immediately aware of their nakedness and shame. And it was there, after giving the devastating consequences for their sin, that God also provided for them their first gift after the fall. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Genesis 3.21. That picture, the life of an animal required for the covering of sinful people, 
hints at the system of sacrifices that Moses is now being given. And all these details about the priestly garments underscore one big truth. For unholy people to draw near to a holy God, they must be covered. Let's notice two key aspects about these priestly clothes. First, the kind of clothing fit for God's presence is beautiful and holy. Consider the materials for making these clothes. Many are similar to those used in the construction of the tabernacle. Beautiful dyed cloth, gold threads and chains, precious jewels, engraved signets. These are rare costly and noble, representing the glory of the Lord who is present in the midst of his people. As Sharice pointed out, these materials are fitting for a kind of new Garden of Eden where people may once more dwell in God's presence. Priestly garments to be worn in the tabernacle also reflect God's demand for holiness. Golden bells on the hem of the robe and undergarments to cover nakedness are required when drawing near to God, lest they bear guilt and die. And the golden plate on Aaron's turban declares holy to the Lord. Here is the second aspect. The clothing of priests is purposeful. It reflects their role to bring God's people before him and to bring God's word to the people. Consider the Urim and Thummim, part of the high priest's breastpiece. We aren't given many details on their function, but they are evidently used to inquire of God and to make judgments or decisions, as we hear referenced in several places later in the Old Testament. And remember the precious symbols of the names of God's people engraved on onyx stones on the priest's shoulder pieces, and also on 12 precious jewels on the breast piece, that they would be constantly remembered before God. The priest's clothing is a physical manifestation of their intercessory position as those who would bear God's people in God's holy presence. Now, how did these instructions point forward toward Christ? The precious, beautiful, holy attire of the priests foreshadows the perfect righteousness that would be woven together during every moment of our Savior's life on earth. The threads of justice, mercy, truth, and grace, the perfect fulfillment of all God's will. This is the covering that we need that we could never earn. Listen to Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. In unspeakable grace, these priestly clothes hint of the great exchange that Christ would grant to us. He paid for our sin, and his perfect righteousness cloaks all who trust him. 
Let's briefly reflect on the timing of our passages as we have studied the tabernacle these past weeks. Did you notice? These passages fall both before and after the golden calf incident. We read of God's instructions before, and then we read of the execution of the design after. But how could God's plan be unchanged by their grievous sin? Because God already knew the ugly hearts of his people. And he grounded his relationship with them on his own character and the coming Redeemer who would truly atone for their sins. Now let's follow this thread of the priestly attire forward to see what it means for us today. We are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its lusts. Romans 13, 14. In addition, we are to bear the beautiful fruit of righteousness. This is holy living empowered by God's Spirit in us. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Colossians 3, 12 through 14. So it is worth reflecting. How is your attire? Are you, as 1 Timothy 2.10 exhorts, adorned with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works? But the thread continues. Consider the future fulfillment of the beautiful and holy attire of the priests. Christ is preparing a new home for us. And there, in the New Jerusalem, we are told that similar precious stones will adorn not just the breastpiece of one person who may come to the presence of the Lord, but the entire city. The names of the twelve apostles will be emblazoned on the foundations of the city, and the gates will bear the inscription of the names of Israel's twelve tribes. Revelation 21, verses 12 through 21 tell us. Do you see the beauty and precious remembrance exploded out on a cosmic scale? In our new home, the people of God will be clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. And the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Revelation 19.8 And instead of a gold plate inscribed with holy to the Lord on the forehead of a single high priest, Revelation 22.4 says that the name of the Lamb will be on the foreheads of God's servants. Next. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Exodus 29, 35-36a. The priest's consecration, setting sinners apart for God's service. 
Though priests appear in the Bible prior to this time, for example, Melchizedek and Potipharah, priest of On, these are the first recorded instructions for establishing a priesthood among God's people. And as we read through the instructions for preparing Aaron and his sons, we learn about their role. Priests are specially chosen, consecrated ministers who draw near to the Holy God on behalf of sinners. This is an awesome and weighty call. Consider each of the steps given to prepare them. Take one bull, two rams, and unleavened bread. Wash Aaron and his sons with water. Clothe them with the special garments. Anoint them with special oil. Ordain Aaron and his sons. Sacrifice the animals. Put blood on the priests and their garments and the altar as a sin offering and burnt offering. Wave portions of the offering before the Lord as a pleasing aroma. Burn portions of the offering on the altar, but burn some outside the camp where the unclean things go. Aaron and his sons eat a portion of the offering for their atonement, ordination, and consecration. Purify the altar, make atonement for it, and consecrate it. It shall be most holy. We notice that even the special clothes and special furniture that we have studied have no intrinsic holiness. The blood that is required to consecrate them indicates that they are tainted by sin, as every work of our hands is. God himself is the one who sanctifies by his glory so that he may dwell in the midst of his people. Also, these animal offerings are not ultimately effective. Blood is constantly needed morning and evening throughout the generations. These are pointers and shadows. Though God gives Moses extensive instructions for the people of Israel to prepare, let's notice all that the Lord does in Exodus 29:42 through 46. He meets, speaks, sanctifies, consecrates, and dwells. He has redeemed them from Egypt to establish them as his people. He is the Lord, their God. Though sin has broken the communion of God and man, no more walking with God in the garden, nevertheless, he is appointing and consecrating these priests so that once more people may draw near to him. And how does this point toward Christ? Christ is our great high priest who offers himself as a perfect sacrifice and brings us to God for eternal salvation. Where these human priests had to be consecrated by blood because of their own sin before they could draw near to God, holiness is who Christ is. The Bible says that Jesus is holy blameless, pure, set apart from sinners. Only on the cross, bearing the sin and guilt of others, does he experience separation from the Father, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's more, Christ accomplishes what Moses and the Old Covenant could not. 
He makes us a kingdom of priests. He is our righteousness, and he consecrates every believer to a life of holy service, drawing near to God and sharing his word with others. With that in mind, what do these details about the consecration of priests reveal for us? As those who have been called and consecrated in Christ, we now live out our holy priesthood, offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. 1 Peter 2.5 That includes things like bringing God's truth to bear in one another's lives and introducing unbelievers to our great Savior and bearing one another's burdens to God in prayer. But beyond that, our daily lives are set apart. Our sins are covered by Jesus. And true, though imperfect, holy living is now enabled through the power of God's Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Let's heed the call of 1 Peter 1.15. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. But maybe you struggle with the woeful incongruity of your life with the holiness of God. Let me invite you to a daily or an hourly or even moment by moment practice of another privilege purchased for us by Christ. Repentance. Let's say just theoretically, that I am in the middle of a horrible funk. I am feeling impatient and snappish with my children, and I'm resenting my husband for not meeting my needs. I can feel the junk in my heart broiling around, and God feels very far. The miracle of Christ's atonement means that I do not need to stay in that sad muddle until my next quiet time or church service. We don't have to wait until a morning or evening sacrifice. 1 John 1, 9 holds out to us this beautiful promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ offers fresh grace and forgiveness anytime we notice and confess our sinful actions or attitudes, and fellowship is immediately restored. But there is still promise of future fulfillment. As Revelation 22.14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. One day, all those who have been consecrated and cleansed by Christ will be invited into his presence forever. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
Revelation 5, 9 and 10. Next. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord, so as to make atonement for your lives. Exodus 30, verse 16. Atonement money and extravagant supply. Each one shall give. Let's consider the instructions the Lord gave for a special collection called atonement money. When is this collected? When you take the census of the people of Israel, though we don't know exactly when that would occur. Who and what is involved in this giving? Each one numbered over 20 years gives a half shekel offering or five grams, equal for every person. This is not a free will offering, but a ransom payment to make atonement for their lives. You may note the reference to the Day of Atonement described just a few verses earlier. And why? Two reasons for the offering are mentioned in this passage. One, that there be no plague among you when you number them. And two, that in the service of the Tent of Meeting, it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. Plagues have pay, played a big role in Exodus as God used them to judge Egypt. And God promised in Exodus 15:26 that he would not put the diseases on his people if they listened to him and obeyed his word. But would God's people obey his word? No. And so atonement, which is covering like blood over the doorpost, must be made. And this money is a token of the true atonement that every person needed. And for what? This money was to be used for the service of the tent of meeting. So what kind of impact would this offering have on the people of Israel? All the people would be involved here in the active worship of God. Each one would have a reminder of his or her sin and need for covering. The equal payment reflects our common standing as those far from God. Neither rich nor poor have a head start in holiness. But another kind of giving is also described in these wonderful chapters. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. This generosity of the people of Israel bringing much more than enough, as Exodus 36, 1 through 8 describes, may be the greatest miracle we see in Exodus. God has done a miracle from the inside out in his people. 
from the very hands that pooled all their gold to craft an abominable idol, he has channeled overwhelming generosity for the sake of worshiping Yahweh. A tiny foretaste of the transformation that he will bring in his people in the new covenant. How do these contributions point toward Christ? We remember that the people of God are redeemed not by perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Our equal standing as sinners, rich and poor alike, calls for a ransom available only through Jesus. For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4, 12. No one gives like Christ gives. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. What do these instructions and contributions reveal for us? First, there is a universal offering appropriate for all ransomed, atoned for people. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19b through 20. For rich and poor alike, in view of our atonement in Christ, our bodies are a living sacrifice, our lives fully given to the Lord. In addition, every child of God has unique opportunities to give according to God's provision and prompting. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency and all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. 2 Corinthians 9, 7-8 through 8. I challenge you in faith to put the words of our Savior to the test when he says we are happier when we give than when we receive. This is a season of need for our church. But the grace of God is not insufficient I pray that we will each taste the privilege of being a conduit of his provision, for it is impossible to outgive God. It really is impossible to outgive God. Do you know how all this points to a future fulfillment? Friends, a lavish home beyond all comprehension, is being prepared for us to dwell with our Redeemer. Reading the details of Revelation 21, 
you'll find pictures of extravagant beauty and glory that human words can't capture. The point is this. We don't give because God needs anything. He has paid the ultimate price to bring us near. Our giving is to prepare our hearts for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6, 21. Oh, to have a heart and treasure invested where God himself will dwell with us eternally. See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Exodus 31, 1, 3, and 12 and 13. Workers and rest, spirit-enabled labor, and covenant-keeping rest. Through the elaborate details given here, we see that Bezalel, Aholiab, and all the able men called by the Lord would be enabled in every way to make all the Lord commanded. Creative design skillful implementation, and inspired teaching are spirit-enabled gifts from God for the building of his dwelling place. As a counterbalance to the labor and effort to be expended in crafting this tabernacle, God reiterates a command to stop. Because of God's pattern in creation and because of God's personal covenant, His people are to rest on the Sabbath. This is a holy sign that sanctifies. Perhaps you are startled to hear the severe penalty for those who disobey, who disregard God. Consider the history of the Israelites. They have just been brought out of 400 years of slavery, years defined by unbroken work. Consider the demands of the pagan gods, gods of all the nations around them. You must strive to please. You must give in order to receive. You must earn any good you desire. You must work. Then, in powerful and beautiful contrast, we hear the words of our Redeemer. On pain of death, do not Return to ceaseless work. Your covenant God calls you to rest. For he is the creator, the all-sufficient one, the great provider. How does all this point toward Christ? When Christ came, do you recall what a fury the religious leaders were in because of his work? John 5 16 and 17. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. 
the Pharisees had flipped God's instructions about work and rest upside down, turning the Sabbath into something you needed to do to be acceptable to God, an elaborate system of rules you needed to follow. They had 39 classes of work forbidden on the Sabbath. But Jesus repeatedly demonstrated that he had divine authority over the Sabbath, that he was correcting the distortions they had made of the Sabbath, and that his life was actually fulfilling and expanding the meaning of Sabbath rest. How do these words about labor and rest fit in our time in redemptive history? The workers, Bezalel and Holiab and the other laborers, had spirit enabling for the construction of the tabernacle where God would dwell with man. But today, we, the people of God, are God's building, his spiritual dwelling place. And every saint is spirit-enabled for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, Ephesians 4, 12 and 13. The Apostle Paul said, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. So we also are to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. So we do labor, but it is a different kind of work than the hamster wheel of the world. God provided manna for his people in the wilderness. He provided materials for the tabernacle. He even gave homes and vineyards in the promised land, not through the industrious efforts of his people, but as a display of his utterly unearned grace. And he provides for our needs just as thoroughly and lavishly today. That means that we have the freedom to rest. We don't find our identity in the things that we do for God as though we could produce something good for him out of our own resources. We are secure in his favor because of the work he has already done for us. Our Savior graciously beckons, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. We enjoy sleep at night and times of refreshment in heart and body because God is on his throne And we don't need to earn his favor or forgiveness. But there is yet greater promise for future fulfillment. Hebrews 4, 9 through 11 says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. 
Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest. This is a Sabbath rest of the soul, a rest purchased for us by the work of Christ. He fulfilled all righteousness. He paid all the debt of our sin. And when he said, it is finished on the cross, as we heard in the Good Friday service, it meant that the wrath of God was fully poured out on this substitute. And we are now invited into God's presence on the basis of his finished work. Dear sisters, we will one day experience this full and perfect rest in a home where there is no longer any temple, for the temple in that place is the Lord God himself and his son, the Lamb. Revelation 21:23. And in that wonderful place, we will dwell in ever-expanding peace and joy with our Redeemer forever. For all the work of redemption, he has utterly finished. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our worship. We could never draw near to you on the basis of what we offer, but you have done everything needed. You cover us over in the beautiful righteousness of your Son. You have paid for the price of our sin. You have worked where we have failed, and now we anticipate the day because of Christ that we may dwell with you forever. Thank you for these truths, Father. Would you minister to the heart of each woman And through us, Lord, might you grant others to hear and enter into the rest of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.